0: Thank you for tuning in to the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for Worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see. So tonight, we are going to be uh, talking, discussing, you're going to be listening really, uh, about biblical self-control. Now, when pastor asked me to do this, this is uh, somewhat ironic. It feels ironic. All right. If you had asked me years ago, this is not... Um, my expertise, will say. Um, I am probably the, the truest version of a redhead. And so with that comes a temper. And having self-control uh, doesn't really come natural. But kids really change a lot about you. And you have to learn patience very quickly with kids and with a wife. So this is something I'm working on. I don't claim to be an expert. Um, I don't know that anyone can really claim to be an expert, but we are going to go through and we're going to try to learn about this together tonight. Try to learn what the Bible says about self-control and how we can do it in a biblical manner. So, to start, I think the first thing that we need to take a look at is the definition of self-control. What does it really mean? It's the ability to control oneself in a In particular, to control one's emotions, to control your desires, or the expression of those desires, or your behavior, to be able to control your actions. Control yourself, especially in the face of adversity. Being able to dictate how I'm going to react. To control what I'm going to do based on my circumstances. That's what self-control really looks like. Now, we can look all throughout the Bible and we can find many different examples, Bible characters on uh, both what self-control looks like and what a lack of self-control looks like. For example, you look at Job. You look at everything that he faced in his life, trial after trial, loss after loss, and still he controlled himself. He controlled his emotions. Now that's not to say that he still didn't struggle. It's not to say that he still didn't have have thoughts of why am I here. But he controlled his thoughts, especially towards God. He still knew who was in control. He still knew who was in power throughout his whole dilemma. Joseph is another example. Trial after trial. Adversity after adversity. And yet still he served God. Still, he loved God. In the midst of prison, in the midst of being lied about, he still had a form or a a look of control about him. Then we find other examples throughout the Bible of those that we can say lacked self-control. pastor just preached on Sunday about Moses. God told him that he was to go and speak to a rock and there would be a, a river that would flow out. But out of his anger and everything that he was dealing with, everything that he was facing with, all the murmuring and everyone yelling behind his back, he instead struck this rock. All out of anger, he reacted. He showed a lack of self-control. God still performed a miracle, but because of it, his life was affected. He didn't get to see the promise because he could not show self-control. David, when he was on the run, this is described as a, a man after God's own heart. And when he's running and he sees Saul at a distance, he sneaks up in the middle of the night and he cuts off a piece of his garment just to show what he could have done. Not because he wanted to kill him, just to show the possibility, show Saul what he could have done. He showed a lack of self control, he touched God's anointed. Look at. Peter, when he was in the garden, he was angry. The, the guards were taking away Jesus. So he pulls out his sword and he cuts off one of the guards here. Showing a lack of self-control. So, what does this really mean? What is this self-control topic? What does it really mean and why is it important? When we understand the definition we understand that it's the ability to control yourself. It's the ability to control your behavior, especially in those difficult situations. It's a lot easier for us to look at a lack of self-control than it is to look at control itself. Right? It's easier for us to find examples of people lacking control than people who are controlled. It's this concept inside of our hearts or inside of our minds that just a little bit more is acceptable. A lack of self-control says that you can take it just a little bit further. Whatever that means, whether it's with your words, with your actions, with your thoughts, with your intentions, you can take it just a little bit further. It pushes you to take it further. Proverbs 25 verse 27 says, it's not good to eat too much honey, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. It's like a person who has this city that is built and they have these great big walls, but inside the walls, there are holes. You can see that On the outside, things seem to look good, but you can still get in. You can still get at this person. You can still get to the inside of the walls because there are things that are lacking. There are things that are hurting. The Bible says that it's not good to eat too much honey. Now, does that mean that honey is bad all by itself? Absolutely not. Honey is a good thing, especially when it's in Honey Nut Cheerios. Nobody else Honeycombs, really it's just cereal. It's good in cereal. The only other thing is like a honey bun. It's the best thing. Anyone like a honey bun? No? It's okay to laugh in here. Like a honey bun. Thank you for that. Have you ever thought to yourself, like uh, you think Thanksgiving is coming up? Have you ever got to Thanksgiving and you know you have just stuffed yourself? You're two, three plates in, and you think, you know what? I've already gone this far. What's one more plate? I've already ate all day. What's, what's one more helping of mashed potatoes? Or grandma's grandma's stuffing. What's one more bowl of stuffing? I know we've done nothing but eat today. I know that somehow I've got a to function tomorrow. But let's just take it one little step farther. That's really how your flesh works. That you think you can just take one more Step. It convinces you that a little bit more is okay. That a little step farther isn't such a bad thing. And then after you take that step or after you uh, make that accommodation or you make that uh, decision, it's easier to make it again, to make another and another. And slowly we see that our control starts to dwindle. That we continue to take steps away from who we're supposed to be, of what we're supposed to be, we walk away from a controlled life and we walk to a life that's just pleasing to our flesh. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, through 5, it says, Mark this, that there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents. Some parents say amen. amen. That's right. Have ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, those without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, they're treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, having nothing to do with such people. We read here, Paul makes a strong statement. When it lists out all of these things that in the last days there's going to be all these kinds of people. They're going to be lovers of themselves and they're going to be lovers of money. And they're going to be disrespectful to their parents, disobedient. And they're going to be treacherous, conceited, all of these things. It lists with that that they're going to be those without self-control. People who can't control their emotions when adversity comes. People who can't control their thoughts, their decisions, their actions whenever adversity hits. And Paul says, don't even associate yourself with these people. Don't even, don't even talk. Don't even con, uh, uh, communicate with these people because you don't want to have that kind of mindset. Now, when you look at this list of things, in my opinion, I think all of it is encompassed in self-control. You look at everything that Paul listed all of it comes from a lack of self-control. If you have lovers of money, it's because they can't control their self enough to prioritize it the right way. You look at disobedient children it's because they lack self-control. They don't know when to keep their mouth closed. I was one of those kids. You don't know when to be quiet when you're supposed to. Not respectful. It all becomes encompassed in self-control. Now, the other side of this, we read in First Timothy, in chapter three. It said, "This is a trustworthy saying." So we heard about everything that's going to happen in the last days, and what that looks like, and what having a lack of self-control looks like. But in First Timothy, it talks about the importance. It Says, if someone aspires to be a church leader. He desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control. Live wisely and have a good reputation. Now, this is uh, our, our armor bearer motto. You know, the, it's the group that Pastor put together of people who... want to teach, people that want to preach, people that want to really just be there and help the pastor, to to be an assistant, to be uh, someone who can take some of the weight. And this is the creed that pastor has brought, that to be that kind of person, you need to be someone who is blameless. You need to be someone who uh, is above reproach, who is faithful, someone who exercises self-control important for us to show self-control now before you say that doesn't pertain to me because i'm not an armor bearer and it doesn't pertain to me because i'm not a church leader let me bring this uh, bring this for your consideration think each and every one of us are church leaders in one form or another because we are all called to make disciples it's our job And if you are to make disciples, you are leading those people. You're leading them towards God. Pastor always says that you can lead people to the point where you are at right now. So if my job is to lead, my job is to show people. That makes me a church leader. If you are a P7 leader, you're a pastor right there in your school. You're leading people. If you have Bible studies that you put together, you are leading people. People And if you're not there yet, you don't have a Bible study, or you aren't a P7 leader, you're not involved in CMI, one day you will. Because that's what we're called to do. We're to reach the lost. And so my job is to be a church leader. But if that's not enough, if that's not a, a good enough explanation for you, then we'll look at Scripture to help back this up. I'll prove that this applies to everyone. In Titus Chapter 1, it goes through and it's talking about uh, putting the church together and raising up elders. Raising up people who can help lead. It says, For a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not a striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, controlled. Their mind and order, just, holy, temperate. So it says as an elder, you can put yourself in whatever category you want. If you think you're an elder, you can put yourself up there. We'll move on down the list. But as an elder, you're a call. It's your job to be self-controlled. Titus points this out. Move on to Titus 2 in verse 2. And it talks about older men. Says, but speak thou the things which become sound, that the aged men—so not the elders, but the older men—that they be grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity, and patience, be in sound doctrine, be sober, or to be controlled. Titus two and five talks about older women and how they should teach their younger women. The aged women likewise. That they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober. There's that word again. To love their husbands. To love their children. To be discreet, chaste, Keepers at the home. Good, obedient to their husbands. That the word of God not be blasphemed. So we see the Bible points out that if you are an elder, you're to show self-control. If you're an older man, you're to show self-control. An older woman show self-control and teach that to the younger women. And it goes on in verse 6 and says, Young men likewise, exhort and be sober-minded. This points out every bit of criteria, every level, no matter where you are at in your walk in life, your job, the Bible says we are to be self-controlled. We're to show a biblical form of, of self-control now what this tells me because it points out the youngest all the way to the oldest it tells me that this is a process this is not something that you just have or you don't this is something that we are going to continually work on being able to show self-control and as you get older I think that becomes a little bit easier you learn some things as you get older you learn how to control yourself you learn how to control your emotions but it's a process that we are constantly working on in our life, trying to control. Peter goes on, he talks about this process and how we have to continually grow and increase. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 5-8, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So he starts out and says, The foundation of everything you do is faith. You start with this basis. And when you have faith, you add to that goodness. And when you add goodness, then you add on to that knowledge. And when you add on knowledge, you add self-control. Self-control, you add perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, mutual affection. And mutual affection, you add love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it is our job. It's our job to show a sense of self-control. But this is something that we add to. It's not something that you just have. You develop over time. You start with your faith and you add to it this form of self-control. So, here's the trick. It is impossible. It's impossible for us to show any sort of self-control to prove how controlled you are without some kind of adversity. This is the hard part. Because how do you measure self-control? How how do you look at someone and say, you know what, they are just, they are completely in control of their mind, their thoughts, their actions. How, How do you see that unless you watch them walk through a trial or walk through a a battle, walk through adversity. It's impossible. But when you see someone walk through a, a hard time in their life, they prove their mindset. They prove their control. How do you know how strong something is unless it's been tested? How do you know how strong you are until you've been tested? You know, you can... Talk all day about what I would do in any given situation. But until you are faced with it, you don't really know where you stand. You don't know how strong you are until you are walking through it. And you have to make the decision, am I going to live this way or am I not? When I was in high school, I took um, some engineering classes. I thought I wanted to be an engineer. and found out that was a lot more school than I wanted to do took some of these classes and uh, they're really cool. We got, to, uh, we got to look at the structure of bridges. We did this whole course where we reviewed what goes into making a bridge, what it looks like, how many different types of bridges there are, all these different aspects that go into it. And at the uh, end of the semester, I said, okay, we've given you all the knowledge, now I want you to make a model bridge. So they gave us all these materials and we had to make this model. And let me tell you mine looked good. It looked good. Perfect. Everything was in order. I made it as best as I could. Probably looked better than everybody else's. Right? We brag a little bit. It looked good. Okay? But the grade was not based on how it looked. Our grade had nothing to do with the aesthetics. There were some that looked horrible. The grade was based on how much pressure it could hold. So what they would do is they would put them up on this table and they would continue to add weight to it. And slowly but surely you would hear things crack. You would hear things break until finally that bridge gave out. And over and over they went down and some of the ugliest bridges held the most weight. My beautiful little bridge did not do well. You don't find out how strong you really are unless you're tested. And adversity is that form of testing that you have to go through. You can look like you have everything together on the outside. You can look like everything is prepared and everything is ready to go. And you can withstand anything that comes your way. But until that trial really comes, you don't know where you stand. You don't know what your self-control really looks like. See, the Bible, Bible Bible, promises us that trouble is going to come. We're promised that we are going to struggle and we're going to deal with tr- uh, trouble. Job 14 and 1 says, Man that is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. We're promised that our life is going to be full of trouble. Isn't that a great promise? That we know that we get to live a life that's just full of heartache, full of trouble, full of pain. Awesome. Could it be that the reason that you have been struggling lately, the reason that you've been going through whatever trial you have, whether it's in your mind, whether it's on your job, with your boss, whatever the case is, whatever you have been struggling with, whatever your adversity looks like right now, could it be that you're going through that because God is trying to test you? God has put adversity in your path because He wants to see where you stand. Trial by fire. Oftentimes we look at the struggles that we go through and it's frustrating. It's frustrating that I have to deal with this. It's frustrating that it looks like no one else does. And I have to fight this by myself. But could it be that God is testing you? That God wants to add more to your plate. That God wants to build on to your foundation. But first he's got to see if it will hold. Don't throw away your trials as just another moment in life that you have to trudge through. These are things that God helps to build onto us. Self-control isn't defined by godly living in the absence of adversity. But the opposite, it's the act of living for God, of living a godly lifestyle in spite of the adversity that you're facing. In spite of the struggles that you deal with, in spite of the the mental uh, struggles, the mental battles that you go through, living a godly, holy lifestyle. It's not the act of being able to get up. And we talk all the time that when you get knocked down, you need to get back up. And that's all true. And we need to continue to get up. But God's desire is not that you continue to get knocked down. His desire is that you become strong enough that when those trials, those winds, those storms come up against you, that you can stand up against them. And I don't have to constantly be dragging myself back to an altar, getting back to a place with God where I feel like I'm okay. But I'm strong enough that I can stand in the middle of trials. That I am controlled enough that when these troubles that the Bible promises are going to come, when they fight me and they battle my mind, I can stand firm. I can stay up when things get hard. So if this is God's plan, if this is His desire for us to stand firm, His desire is for us to stay controlled, then what keeps us from practicing self-control? It's a good question, right? Flesh? Perfect. There's... Four things, four ideas that I have of things that battle us, things that, that fight us. What I want to call them enemies, enemies of self-control, enemies that you face that fight your control. And the first one I want to talk to you about is distractions, distractions, this temporary loss of focus, not losing everything. And not losing your entire focus, but even just for a moment. Losing track of your purpose. Losing track of what you're supposed to do and who you really are. Just a temporary loss. We're so easily distracted nowadays. I, I, I won't put it on all of you. I am easily distracted. And I know, as a youth pastor, there's a generation that is easily distracted. You put any kind of cell phone device in the room... They're not paying attention to anything else that's going on. We had this big trip this weekend to Tanner's, and on the way back, there was not a sound in the van. They were screaming, they were yelling the whole way there, but on the way back, there wasn't a peep. I tried to make jokes. And I'm a very funny guy. No one laughed. See, I told you I was. No one laughed. They all made fun of me because they were all glued to their phones. I wanted to update their Instagram. Put all the filters on their pictures. It was ridiculous. You weren't in my van. It was ridiculous. Easily distracted. We have a generation that is easily distracted. I was trying to work the other day at home. I was really trying to be productive. It doesn't happen often. I was trying to be productive, and the kids were sitting down, and they they were eating, and they were playing, and all this stuff. And we had on our monitor, monitor, we had Mickey Mouse Clubhouse on. This does not interest me whatsoever. It's not geared towards me. I don't care about Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. But as I'm sitting here trying to work, I found myself constantly looking up, trying to figure out where Mickey was gonna get this fish for this cat. (laughs) What numbers do I have to count to so that you can get this big red gooey fish? I could tell you the entire plot. That's how much I paid attention to. I got no work done. Because we are easily distracted. I am easily distracted. I take it more seriously. We Look at distractive driving. Distracted driving. There's people who have literally lost their lives because someone wanted to send a text message. You ever seen those billboards where um, it looks and it's like a text thread Someone says, hey, and it says unread, and it talks about distracted driving. and That was the last thing that they ever said was, hey, before they got killed. Distractions can be deadly. Distractions can cause loss of life. It's important for us to understand. And when death is a possibility, when that's even in the conversation, is what you're doing, is that moment ever really worth it? Is that text ever worth it? Is that action, is that thought, is that reaction ever really worth it when death is a possibility? We can find a a scenario or story, the Bible. Everyone knows about David and Bathsheba. They were in a time of, of war, a time where kings were supposed to go to war. And David instead elected to stay home in his castle. For whatever reason, whatever his decision was, whatever his desire was, it really doesn't make a difference. Because as he's sitting there in his castle, he gets distracted. He peers over and onto another balcony. He sees this woman bathing, and he desires this woman. So he calls for her, and she ends up pregnant. And in order to cover all of this up, he calls for Uriah to come back home from war so that he can go sleep with his wife and everything can kind of look like it's normal. But this man, he he had his priorities in order. He understood, we're in the middle of this war. I can't be at home when all of my friends, all of my brothers, they're out fighting. So he wouldn't go home to his wife. Instead, David elects that he's going to put him on the front lines. He's going to pull everyone else back. And this man loses his life because there was a king That was easily distracted. Now, keep in mind, this is a man after God's own heart. He knew God, he had a relationship with God, and he was still easily distracted. And when distractions come, there's gonna be loss of life. You had a man who completely lost his life because someone lost track and became distracted. Distractions are an enemy of self-control. The second one I want to talk to you about is misplaced priorities. It's another enemy of self-control. So to understand this, we need to understand first things are first. When you are building anything, it requires that you have a good foundation. If you're going to build anything, you have to make sure the foundation is stable So if you show me what you value most in life, you show me what's most important in your life, I can show you what your foundation looks like. I can tell you a lot about the stability of your foundation if you show me what's important. If you think about building a a stack or building a pyramid, you ever built a pyramid out of people? Nobody? Yes, you have. (laughs) wires. Built a pyramid out of people. It doesn't make sense to put the heaviest person on the top. We've tried it. Doesn't make sense. Because it'll stand for a little bit. It'll stand for a time. But inevitably, that tower's coming down. And the people on the bottom are getting hurt. (laughs) When you build with the heaviest things... On the top, it makes us weak, shallow, temporary, and it sets us up for failure. Because if your strongest, your biggest things are on top, that means your weakest are on the bottom. There's nothing to hold that foundation. So we have to decide what are the heavy things in our lives. What are the most important things in your life? What are the things that should hold the highest priority? And we have to build on those. You ever heard the uh, analogy or the, the story of trying to fit God in? I know they do this a lot in like children's church, where they put the ball in first and it represents God. And then they fill everything else on top of it and it fits perfectly. But when they take God out and they fill up this, this jar, then all of a sudden God doesn't fit. Because your priorities have to be in order. God has to be at the foundation. He has to be the heaviest thing in your life. It's like putting the biggest guy on the top of that pyramid. It might work out for a little bit, but sooner or later that's going to come crashing down. Matthew 6 and 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Jesus tells us specifically that his stuff should be the heaviest. That the God stuff should be the biggest priority in your life. Matthew 7, 24 says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these things, hears these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house on a rock, a strong foundation. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on that house, and it fell not. For it was founded on a rock. When you're building the foundation, when you're building the the tower or the pyramid of your life, you need to make sure that you are built on a strong foundation. And a lot of times I think we can look at our priority list and we can find something that is out of place. It may not be everything. I'm not saying that everything that you have on your list is wrong. But you need to understand the order. I need to understand the order. And if God is not first, if God is not on the foundational level, everything else is going to be weak and it's going to fall apart. The third enemy of self-control is impatience. This quote says, if you want to get God's vision, if you want to get his vision for your life, for your ministry, you have to want to hear it. You have to withdraw to hear it, and you have to wait to hear it. The question is, what does impatience get you? You think about it. Impatience really just gets you the next thing. It doesn't get you the best thing. It doesn't get you the right thing or the perfect thing. It just gets you the next thing. Because you don't want to wait for what is right. You don't want to wait for what is perfect So I'm just going to take whatever is next. We feel all kinds of pressure nowadays to get in a hurry, to move so quickly from thing to thing, place to place. If you're anything like me, I like to fill my schedule. I can't stand idle time. If there is a night where I don't have anything, I'm going to fill up my calendar. I can't just sit at home can't have nothing to do. I want to constantly be on the go. And not everyone can do that, I understand. And I'm not saying I do it well. But I can't just sit. I can't sit around. The problem with this when it comes to your spiritual life is God is not always going to chase you out the door to speak to you. God's not always going to run behind you. And try to point you in the right direction and try to tell you what you should be doing and speak to you as you're running all over the place. He wants us to care about him, care about our relationship with him enough that we can sit still and listen. And we value a relationship with God so much that you let all these other things pass by and you just spend time focused on God. I use the analogy a lot of a marriage if I'm constantly running and I don't spend any time one-on-one with my wife, I don't show her that she is a priority. I don't show her that she matters. And anytime she wants to speak to me, she has to step in tow and follow me where I'm going because I won't stay there long enough and talk. That's not going to build a strong relationship. It's important for us to build that relationship and have that one-on-one communication, talk, with God, and a lot of times that means that we need to sit quiet. We need to listen. Too often, I think we try to talk and tell God what we need and show Him what we need and use our words, but we don't listen. So the question is how do you slow down? I think the answer is really simple it's a really bad four letter word, it's wait. For us to slow down, for us to hear God, for us to follow after God, you have to be willing to wait. You have to wait quietly. Psalm 62 and 5 says, let all that I am wait quietly before God because my hope is in Him. When you think about self-control, when you think about someone who you've seen show really good self-control, rarely is it ever allowed. Rarely do you ever find someone where you say, wow, they really, they really know how to control their emotions. And it was just loud and obnoxious. Self-control is usually quiet. It's usually reserved. It's usually meek. For us to really follow after God, to listen to what God has to say, we have to learn to wait quietly after God. We need to learn to wait patiently after God Psalm 37 says, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Don't move until you feel like God is leading you. Don't move until you've seen what God has wanted you to see or or you've led where God is leading. Listen to what He has to say. Wait patiently. All too often, we, we get up because we don't hear God say something. We pray and we spend so much time in prayer. Whatever your, uh, your rate of time looks like, whether it's hours, days, months, we spend time in prayer trying to hear from God. But when that time, our patience runs out, and we decide, you know what, I'm just going to do what feels right to me. Because God didn't answer in the time that we expected. God didn't answer in the way that we expected. We run out of patience, and we move on with what we want to do. But we have to learn to wait patiently. God's timing is not our timing. But God's plan is much better than our plan. And if I really want God's will for my life, I'm not going to move until he gives me an answer. If that means I've got to stay in the same place, that's okay. You don't constantly have to be moving. You don't constantly have to be going to the next thing. I want to be led by God more than I want to go to the next thing. We have to learn to wait patiently, and we also have to learn to wait expectantly. Psalm 130 and 5, it says, I wait expectantly, trusting God to help, for He has promised. God promised that if you wait, there should be an expectation about you that He is going to move, that God is going to show up, If we learn to wait, we learn to be patient. God is going to show up and he's going to lead us. Patience is an enemy of self-control. The last enemy I want to talk to you about is laziness. Laziness is an enemy of self-control. There's a man who told his doctor that he wasn't able to do all the things around his house that he used to be able to do. When... The exam was complete, and the doctor went through everything, tested everything. The man said, all right, doc, I've gone through it all. Now, be honest with me. You. you can tell me in plain English what's wrong with me. What do I have to do? What's wrong? The doctor looked at him and said, well, in, in plain English, you're lazy. The man said, okay. I, I kind of knew that, but here's the deal. I need some kind of medical term so I can go back and tell my wife why I can't do these things. You do think I'm funny, don't you? Every once in a while, we all need a good stirring. We all need, uh, need the Holy Ghost to stir in us because we fall in this rut of laziness. Right? Is it just me? We fall into this rut where we just do the same thing over and over again. And it becomes so easy, so convenient that I don't really want to step out and do anything different. Whether it's in your prayer life, I don't want to make any more effort than what I have been doing because this is easy. This fits into my time. This fits into my schedule. Whether it's in your Bible reading, your worship, whatever the case is, we fall into this rut of laziness, of convenience, We have to get to a place where we allow the Holy Ghost to stir up inside of us. Because you're going to get to that that rut. You're going to get to that, that thought or that feeling of laziness. And you've got to allow the Holy Ghost to help push you out of that rut. We need to understand what our purpose is. 2 Timothy 1 and 6 says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in you by putting on of my hands. Stir up the gift of God. 2 Peter 1 and 13 says, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. 2 Peter 3 and 1 says, The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. See, a lot of times we are lazy in what we do. We follow after convenience. But the Holy Ghost is there to push us. To Push us towards God. To propel us out of that rut. To propel us out of that laziness. So that we can really follow after the will of God. We know what we're supposed to do. We understand what we're supposed to do. But we don't apply it. Romans 7 and 18 says, For I know that good itself doesn't dwell in me. There's not good inside of this man. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good. I just can't carry it out. There's nothing good inside of this flesh. There's nothing inside of me that can can follow after God. I, I... I know what to do. I know what I should do. And I want to do what's right. I want to follow after God. But I just can't carry it out. I can't do it. Our nature, our human flesh, we know what the right thing to do is. And yet, a lot of times we do wrong. We go against what I know to be right. I go against the Holy Ghost that's inside of me, that's pushing me towards God, and instead choose what's appealing to my flesh. It's this constant battle that we face between the spirit and the flesh. Whichever one is bigger, whichever one is stronger at that moment is the one that is going to win out. I know what's right, and yet I do wrong. So, if I know that my flesh... Is going to struggle and is going to combat the spirit of God that is inside of me. I know that my flesh is going to pull me into a a state where I cannot show self-control. Then how do we do it? How do we show biblical self-control if we've got this flesh that's going to fight us? Paul gave us a real life example. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting verse 7, it says... But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, and yet we're not distressed. We are perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, and we're not destroyed, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed every day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, the irony of biblical self-control, the irony of this class, this discussion, is that in order for you to really show spiritual self-control, you have to lose control of yourself. I came up with that all on my own. In order for you to show spiritual self-control, you have to lose control of yourself. Or a better term is this. In order for you to show spiritual self-control, you have to give control of yourself. Because this flesh is not going to do what's right. This flesh is going to combat the Holy Ghost that is inside of me. So Paul goes through and he talks and he says, what I've got to do is I've got to get rid of this outward man. I've got to get rid of this flesh because it's not going to do the right thing. And I've got to take on this inward man. I've got to renew it every single day because tomorrow my flesh is going to rise up again. My flesh is going to want what it wants and it's going to pull me away from God. So tomorrow I've got to kill it all over again. I've got to take this spirit and I've got to build it up. Matthew 7, 16 says, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree can't bring forth evil fruit, and neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Your flesh cannot bring forth good fruit. Now what does fruit have to do with anything? Well, the Bible. The Bible's so cool. In Galatians, it lists out the fruits of the Spirit. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That's cool. For you to show good fruit, for you to show spiritual self-control, you have to have a good tree. This flesh will never show good Self-control. And people are going to know you by your fruit. People are going to know the spirit of God. People are going to know the God that you serve by your actions. By how you display them. When adversity comes, we go back to that definition. How you handle your emotions and how you handle your actions, especially when facing adversity. They're going to know you by your fruit. They're going to see the self-control that is in you. They're going to understand that there is no way that this person could do that unless God was with them. There's no way that they could handle that situation the way that they have unless God was there. There's no way they can handle that mental struggle that they're dealing with except God is there with them. It's going to be evident. The people that you lead, we're all church leaders. The people that you lead, they're going to know God because of your fruit. They're going to see God through you. And the only way to do that is to kill off this flesh every single day. The only way to show real, true, biblical self-control is to kill off our flesh. So with that, I wonder if we can pray tonight. And we're just going to pray that we can take this word. Pray that we can take it tomorrow, because your day is almost over. But your flesh is going to rise up again in the morning. The people are looking at you. People in your work are looking at you. People on your street, your friends, coworkers, other students, they're looking at you. And they're looking to see what the fruit looks like. This world is constantly testing different things, trying to find something that fits. Try alcohol and see if that f- fits this hole. And we'll try smoking, we'll try, we'll try sex, we'll try all these different things to see if we can fit this hole that they feel. All the while not knowing that God is the only thing that can fill it. And when they look at you, when they look at me, see God through me is by looking at the fruit I've got to show the right things amen let's pray together Lord we worship you Jesus God we thank you Lord for this night I thank you for this word God I pray Lord that you would take it God you would help us to put it away God that we would understand in order to really show your spirit to this world and a world that is lost a world that's hurting a world that's looking for you God, we've got to be able to get rid of this flesh, to get rid of this thing that's pulling us out, pulling us away from you. God, this thing that is trying to push towards our own desires. God, we've got to kill it each and every day. and allow your spirit to reign supreme in our life. God, I pray, Lord, that as we go throughout our jobs, we go throughout our schools, God, that people would see you through us. God, they would see your love They would see your glory. They would see your power. God, I pray, Lord, that we would see hungry, hurting people. God, as we walk down the halls, as we walk down the streets, God, that you would put them in our path. God, and I pray, Lord, we would live our life in such a way that they would see you through us. God, they would see the fruit that we produce. God, we thank you, Lord, for it. God, and we're believing you for a mighty increase, for a mighty revival in the name of Jesus. Amen.